Hello, and welcome to the podcast for East 11th Street Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm Jordan Messer, the pastor of East 11th, and I'm delighted you found our podcast. We hope the content here is an encouragement to you and pray the Lord uses it to bear fruit in your life. If you have questions about anything you hear today or would like to know more about following Jesus, you can find us on Facebook by searching for East 11th Street Baptist. And now, here's today's message. morning, I want to invite you once again to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark in the New Testament as we continue uh, this journey with Jesus uh, on the way to Calvary. As we approach Easter Sunday, uh, we are following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark as he approaches uh, the week of his passion. Really, his entire ministry was one of passion as we will see very clearly in our verses this morning as I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you're using the blue hardback pew Bible, uh, you'll find our passage beginning on page 978 in the blue hardback pew Bible. And I'm going to encourage you I hope this is your custom already, but if it's not, I'm going to encourage you to find that passage in your Bible and then keep your Bible open uh, for the whole duration because we have quite a bit of ground to cover this morning and you are going to be very helped uh, to follow along through your Bible as we walk through this passage. We come this morning to the very heartbeat of Mark's Gospel. This is the very heart of what Mark has been communicating up to this point, and it will carry us through as the Lord Jesus approaches Jerusalem. I told you several weeks ago that the Gospel of Mark specifically seems to be a a manual or at least a reflection on what it means to be Jesus's disciple. You need to understand this as you read any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They are not what you would call a boots-on-the-ground sort of investigative journalism. I'm just reporting to you as it happens. That's not how the Gospels were written, and that's not their purpose. The Gospels were some of the very latest books to be written of the New Testament. The Gospel of Mark, for example, was probably written sometime in the 50s or 60s A.D., 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, with the other Gospels coming much later than that. And it's, it's possible and probably likely that Matthew and, Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke even used Mark as a primary source for their Gospels. The point being that the gospel accounts were not written as the authors just remembered things. It's not as if one day a thought occurred to them, something they remembered about Jesus, and so they jotted it down, and here we have this collection of writings. No, the gospels were written with structure and purpose. 
they were written with a clear structure and an intended purpose. You remember John told us his purpose at the end of his gospel so that you might have faith in the Lord Jesus. His gospel is written so that we would believe in Jesus. We know Luke's gospel was written to give a true and orderly account of all that Jesus said and did. He tells us that at the beginning of the gospel of Luke. The gospels are often highly structured and you have to pay attention as you read uh, to see how they've ordered their material. And when you can see how they've ordered their material, their purpose for including that material can become evident. This is clear in our passage today. You're in Mark chapter 8. We're going to begin at verse 27. But this section of the gospel, this unit that we're considering this morning, goes all the way over into chapter 10 and verse 52. Now I hesitated to try to cover such a large passage of scripture in one message with you. Uh, that was a, a fear that I had. Can I really get through this? Maybe we should break it up. And I promise you multiple sermons could be preached on each episode that we're going to cover. But I think you'll see if we look at it as one passage, one unit with one message, you'll see what Mark is, is teaching us and, and what the Lord Jesus was teaching his disciples. This passage going all the way over to the end of chapter 10 is highly structured and it's intended to show us this. It's intended to show us what it means to live the Christian life in the shadow of the cross. Living the Christian life in the shadow of the cross. You could call this entire section from chapter 8 to the end of chapter 10, the cross-shaped life. Or maybe even the way of the cross. Three times in our passage today, the Lord Jesus predicts his own death. He tells his disciples bluntly, plainly, I am going to be killed as he is approaching the city of Jerusalem on his way to the cross. There is no such thing as Christianity without a cross. The cross stands at the very center of what it means to be a Christian. The cross of Jesus anchors the Christian life. It grounds the Christian life. It gives weight to the Christian life. The cross of Jesus shapes the Christian life. And it defines the very purpose of Christian life. So three times Jesus tells his disciples he's going to be killed. And then three times he defines what it means to have a cross-shaped life. So... With those three sections, I have three headings for us. Like any good preacher, I've got three points to this sermon. But those points are somewhat incidental. Because what I really want you to see as we go through the passage are three themes of a cross-shaped life that Jesus repeats in each of these sections. 
Mark loves the number three. He often puts things in threes. He would have been a Baptist preacher. I'm convinced of it. He always put things in threes. Uh, so he gives us these three sections. And he orders this material to show us the same three themes that form the Christian life after the cross. The three themes are this, and you're going to see these in the same order as we walk through the passage. The first theme is one of suffering. Suffering shapes us into a cross-shaped life. The suffering of Jesus. He, he predicts his own death, and it's a violent death. It's a death of suffering and shame. Suffering gives shape to the Christian life. The second theme is service. The Christian life is one of service and submission to God and in service to others. Jesus is going to teach us what it means to live a life of service. And the third theme is salvation. Salvation. We cannot save ourselves. The cross-shaped life is one of total dependent trust on Jesus. These three themes... Suffering, service, and salvation will shape the life of the disciples. And if we are followers of Jesus, they will shape ours. So, we'll see those three themes, and I've organized walking through this passage with three headings. I'll get to those in a moment. So, I think that's enough about the passage. Let's actually dig in and see what's going on. I'll invite you, let's begin reading in chapter 8 and look at verse 27 where we picked up, or where we left off last time. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And they told, uh, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
Our passage here begins, you saw, with the confession of Peter. This is the first time one of the disciples have made this kind of confession so far here in the Gospel of Mark. They say it plainly, you are the Christ. That's a very familiar term to you and I, but it meant something very significant to them. It was a significant moment of confession for them. It seems like the light bulb has come on. They understand that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God to deliver his people, to bring salvation and deliverance from their enemies. And with that identification of Jesus as Messiah would have come certain expectations. An expectation of victory over enemies. An expectation of a new kingdom. Jesus sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Expectation of a messianic war. Christ comes and he's going to wage war against the Romans. And Israel will be a sovereign state under the blessing of God. These are the expectations. And this confession takes place in a very important location. Peter tells us in verse 27, they are in Caesarea Philippi. That's a very ancient location in the Old Testament. This location was the center of Baal worship in that region. The idol Baal was worshipped here, the fertility god. By the time the Romans came in, their Greek god, their Roman god of Pan was worshipped in this location. Uh, there's a little cave there with some fountains and springs. And there was a shrine set up to the god Pan here in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, when the Romans wanted to rebuild this, uh, Philip, who was the, the son of Herod the Great, built a great temple here. He named the city after himself, Philippi, and also after the Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And that's how it came to be known as Caesarea Philippi. And it was a temple to worship the divinity of Caesar. So get the picture in your mind. Christ brings his disciples very purposefully to this place known to the Jews as a center of Baal worship. It's known to these uh, Hellenistic Greeks here as a place where any god can be worshipped. Pantheism uh, comes from that Greek god Pan. And it's also a place of emperor worship. Caesar was said to be son of the gods. And so here we are. Any worship is welcomed in this place. Any way of salvation is welcomed in this place. But it's here that we have the clearest confession of who Christ is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one sent to deliver His people. And so, Peter confesses Him. And in response to that confession, yes, Peter, that's right. That is who I am. That is what I've come to do. Jesus tells them about His death. Because Jesus understands his role to be an atoning sacrifice. As one who would bear the sins of Israel before the victory must come. So we see here this theme of suffering. 
It is a suffering Messiah. Jesus foretells of his own suffering at the hands of the people he's come to save. And he then calls us to give our lives to him. He has come to give his life. And so the call of discipleship is for you and I to take up our cross and follow him. Now, Peter was not ready for that message. Again, his expectations are glory, deliverance, victory. But Jesus is talking about being killed. I think Peter is under the impression that once they get to Jerusalem, they're going to be excited about Jesus. But the pressure from the Romans and the religious establishment is going to be too great and they're going to lose. And Jesus has a defeatist attitude. And so Jesus says, yeah, Peter, uh, you're right. I'm the Christ. But you know what? When we get to Jerusalem, I'm probably going to be killed. So just get ready. And so Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. Lord, don't have that attitude. Don't say that about yourself. You're not here to die. You're here to take glory. And Jesus corrects that misinterpretation, doesn't he? In not so gentle terms. Get behind me, Satan. Why does he call Peter Satan? Remember what Satan had tempted Jesus to do. We read about it over in the Gospel of Matthew. Satan said, just bow down here. I'll give you all the kingdoms. Just bow down to me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, Jesus, no need for the cross. No need for the suffering. No need for the shame. No need for the rejection. Here's the easy way. Here are the kingdoms. Peter's offering him the same thing. Jesus, let's get to Jerusalem. Let's just knock everybody out. Walk on the water or something when we get there. Do something amazing. Do a miracle. Wipe everybody out. We'll take charge. We'll take power. We'll have the glory. And Jesus recognizes that for what it is. That's the way of Satan. That's the way of the world. Shunning suffering. Shunning the shame. Shunning the difficulty that the way of the cross brings. That's the way of Satan. Rather, the disciple is the one who gives his very life to Christ. He tells Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. The way of God is different than the way we would do things. Whoever would save his life will lose it, Peter. Giving your life over to the world to receive back the things of the world that will corrode your soul, that will eat your soul. The passions of our flesh wage war against our soul. Peter wrote those words in his epistle. Apparently he learned this lesson that when we set our heart on the things of the world, it eats away at us. We become less human. We become something we're not meant to be. We exchange our very soul for something the world has to offer and it eats away at who we are. Jesus says, rather, give your soul to Christ. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Lay aside your wants, your desires and follow me. So this calling to suffering 
would be very shocking and very radical in the time of Jesus. For you and I, the cross is a beautiful piece of jewelry, a symbol of our faith that would adorn our neck or our hand or something like that. Or maybe you have one hanging on the wall in your house. Nothing wrong with that. It's become a beautiful thing for us. But in this day, the cross was a despicable thing. It was a shameful thing. A cross was a symbol that you had been conquered. It was a symbol that you had been subjugated. The cross was not a desirable thing. It was an instrument of execution, not just of death, an instrument of criminal execution. If you want to follow Jesus, it requires that you look that straight in the face. And rather than embracing what the world says, you would, you would say, I will embrace death itself, the cruelest death itself, if it means I gain Christ. Following Jesus was never meant to be just a walk the aisle, say the prayer, shake someone's hand, and that's it, transaction. That's not following Jesus. Following Jesus is discipleship. Following Jesus is walking with him as he approaches the cross, knowing you might face the same fate. It's the way of the cross. Jesus also then, they, they move to another point of revelation here coming into chapter 9. He tells them in verse 1, there are some standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then here in chapter 9, down to verse 13, he takes some of his disciples. Uh, we're told here, Peter, James, and John, there in chapter 9, verse 2, he takes them up to a high mountain, the highest mountain near where they were is Mount Hermon. There's usually snow on the top of Mount Hermon throughout the year. It's the highest mountain in that region. He takes them up to the mountaintop, and there, verse 2 says, he is transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white. Verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This is a momentous moment in the life of the disciples. Verse 6 says they don't even know what to say. Peter blurts something out. Hey, let's build some shelters here. What is he talking about? Mark doesn't even know. Verse 6, he, he did not know what he was saying. They were terrified in the face of the glory of Jesus. Here's what you shouldn't miss. This is a mountaintop revelation of glory. Where else has that happened in the Bible? Mount Sinai, right? God descends on the mountain. And after six days, he reveals himself to Moses. Well, how long are they up here? After six days, Mark tells us, Jesus goes up to the mountain and there reveals his glory. It's a new revelation of who God is. And here's the point. Verse seven, the cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You've confessed who he is. 
Now you've got to submit to his authority. You must submit to this revelation of who Christ is. That's the way of the cross. To give our lives to him, to give our hearts to him, to, to not despise the shame, but to embrace it. And then we turn, return. We see Jesus in his glory. And we give ourselves to him in obedient service. This, this fact of Moses and Elijah being here, that's a way of communicating the law and the prophets are bearing witness about Jesus. Moses did not get to enter into the promised land because of the disobedience in his life. He died without going in and he was taken by God and God himself buried Moses. Similar with Elijah. Elijah did not get to see a great national revival in his day. Instead, he was whisked away to heaven in the chariot of fire. And here we have both of them. They didn't get to see what they wanted in their day, but they got to see Christ in all his glory on this mountain as a testimony to the truth of who Jesus is. And then they come down from the mountain and, and they're talking on the way. Uh, they're, they're asking questions about, well, has Elijah come? And Jesus explains, yes, Elijah has come. That was John the Baptist. Now he's telling them again in verse 12, the son of man is going to suffer many things. They come down from the mountain and they come to verse 14. They come to the rest of the disciples. There's a great crowd. The scribes are arguing with the disciples. So again, get this picture in your mind. What happened the first time when Moses came down from the mountain holding the Ten Commandments? Did, well, what did he find there? An uproarious crowd of Israelites and disobedience to God. They were worshiping idols. It's kind of a similar scene, isn't, isn't it? Jesus comes down from the mountain. He's still radiant with glory. The crowds are amazed when they see him. And he comes down and they're squabbling. They're defeated. They don't know what to do. Because this, this man, we come to find out. In verse 17, has brought his son to the disciples. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And this spirit that is possessing the boy is harming him. And no one can cast out this demon. No one can cast it out. Even the disciples who previously had been casting out demons when Jesus had sent them out. They are not able to. In verse 19, Jesus answered them, O faithless generation. The issue was not necessarily one of ability, it was one of faith. Finally, the Father comes. He's imploring Jesus for help. Verse 24, the Father cried out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. In the face of the scribes who have already rejected Jesus and in the face of the disciples who have seen the power of Christ on display, this father displays the greatest faith of them all. 
That statement, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief is the essence of true faith because it recognizes my own inability and trusts completely on Christ. So they learned this lesson here about salvation in the way of the cross. That I'm unable to deliver myself. I'm unable to deliver others. We must rely on Christ. Our second heading we come to, lesson number two he brings to the disciples, begins in chapter 9, verse 30. And this section I'm calling the commitment of a cross-shaped life. I just told you about the cost of a cross-shaped cross life. And, and now here beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, the commitment of a cross-shaped life. They went out from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will arise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This is something Mark does called the, the, the secret of the Messiah or the messianic secret. You've seen Jesus not want this to get out. He tells people that he's healed. Hey, don't tell anyone. And now he's telling his disciples, hey, keep this quiet. We don't want people to know where we're at right now. Why? Because he does not want to be fighting these expectations. I told you the expectations they had. Jesus wants to define for himself what it means to be the Messiah. But they don't understand. They think it's all about glory. They don't get the suffering again. They begin to argue about who is the greatest? They come to the place that they're staying in verse 33. Jesus knows. He says, um, what were you guys talking about on the way here? They don't want to answer. They kept silent, verse 34, because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They don't want the suffering. Here again, this theme of suffering comes up. Isaiah 53 reminds us that the servant of the Messiah will be a suffering servant. Our iniquities laid on him. He'll be like a sheep led to the slaughter. They don't want anything to do with that. They don't want the suffering. All they can think about is glory. So Jesus turns that on his head and he begins again talking about service, talking about submission. He begins to tell them, if, if you want to be first, you need to become last. If you want to be great, you need to be a servant. He takes a child, puts the child in his lap and says, whoever receives a child like this receives me. Children had no social status. Children had no power in that society. It was a perfect object lesson because the disciples want power. They want status. They want glory. Jesus says that's not what it's about. You've got to submit yourself to God's way. You've got to submit yourself to God's kingdom. John begins to say, Jesus, you know, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. And Jesus says, don't don't tell him to stop. 
They're advancing the kingdom of God. See, John's trying to put himself first. He's trying to promote his own status. He wants to have the revival. He wants to have the notoriety. He wants to have the special treatment. Jesus says, no, even giving a cup of cold water to someone in the name of Christ, that's what counts in God's kingdom. It's not about my notoriety. It's not about my fame. It's about advancing the kingdom, submitting yourself to God's kingdom. And it's about submitting yourself to God's word, taking sin and obedience seriously. Coming over to chapter 9, verse 42, look what he says. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. Don't be a stumbling block to others. Don't cause others to sin. Look how seriously Jesus takes sin. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because we're living in submission to God's word. We're living in submission to what God has said is good. And then he gives an example of this coming into chapter 10. I know we're moving quickly. Coming into chapter 10, some have wondered, why does Jesus start talking about divorce all of a sudden? You notice that here, chapter 10, verse 1, down to verse 12, Jesus begins talking about divorce. What in the world is this about? It becomes an issue because one of the Pharisees asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Long story short, here's what happened. You remember last time I told you the Pharisees had built this superstructure around the law that allowed them to pat each other on the back, but it was actually violating the law itself. This is another example of that. There was a strand of the teaching of the Pharisees that allowed a man to divorce his wife for any reason. You don't like a meal she cooked? You can send her away. She did something in public to embarrass you? You can divorce her. And it didn't hurt them. But it would hurt the woman who was stuck in that situation. And the Pharisees were allowing this kind of thing. And so they come and they want to trick Jesus, but Jesus traps them. And he said, Moses allowed for that because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it was not so. What God has put together, let no man separate. Now, those are very strong words from Jesus. And some have looked at this and they say, well, well what about this and what about that? But understand... The point of this passage is not to give every nuanced view of the Bible's teaching on divorce. It's an arrow from Jesus straight to these people who are causing others to sin. The Pharisees, by their stumbling blocks, by their traditions, by their custom, by their refusal to submit to God, were leading others to sin against God and break the law. It's an example from Jesus how cleverly we can be deceived into thinking we're doing the right thing, but it's really about us. And it's a way to cause others to sin. And then he comes here in this famous interaction in verse 13. 
They were bringing children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus saw it and was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. God's way of salvation is not through social power and social status or wealth. Mark follows this encounter with with this uh, this meeting here of Jesus and the young ruler in verse 17. Jesus was setting out on his journey and a man ran up and, and knelt before him and, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here Jesus is going to give us the theme now of salvation. You see again, suffering, submission to God's word and again, salvation. That's what this passage is about. And you might be familiar with the story. The young man runs up. We're told from other gospel writers that he's young, he's wealthy, and he's in a position of authority. He's a ruler. And he wants to know, hey, Jesus, how do I get on board? How do I have eternal life? How do I join in? This guy has everything that, that even our culture prizes, doesn't he? He's young. He has vitality. He is in a position of authority. He has status. People know who he is. He has great connections. He is wealthy. He has resources. He has money. He could be a great, a great patron for Jesus. He could be a great financial backer for the ministry. The disciples are looking at Jesus like, hey, hey, this is a real opportunity. We could use a guy like this when we get up to Jerusalem. And what's great, this guy doesn't even have skeletons in his closet. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Keep those commandments. And, and he says, hey, I've been doing it. I'm a good guy. I'm faithful. Uh, nothing scary is going to come out about this guy later. This guy has it all. Let me just throw this in there. If you know anyone who sort of fits these qualifications and they're looking for a new church home, you, you send them on over here to East 11th. Well, we could use some folks like this, right? He's got it all. Jesus says to him, one thing you lack. What's he missing? Verse 21, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then you can come follow me. Jesus teaching works salvation here? No. He's teaching this. That whatever it is you're trusting in that keeps you from giving your whole life to Jesus, you're going to have to let it go. Whatever is holding you back from, from embracing wholeheartedly Christ and his glory, that's what you're going to have to get rid of. Whatever keeps us from trusting God alone will need to be removed in order to be saved. The one thing he lacked was dependent trust on Jesus, and Jesus exposed it immediately. Yeah, sell what you have. Just trust in me. You'll be good. He couldn't do it. He went away sorrowful. 
because he had great possessions. It's a great question we have to face. What, what else are we trusting in? What else do we have that keeps us from giving our whole selves to Jesus? That's what we have to get rid of. It's not an issue of, of rich or poor. It's an issue of what you're trusting in. You will never have enough money to get yourself into heaven. But one dollar could keep you out. If that's what you love. Because you're not following Jesus. It's a tragic story. Because he had it all. But he lost everything. Thirdly, and we're done very quickly. I want you to see the calling of the cross-shaped life. Again, you're going to see these themes. Suffering, service, and salvation. Verse 32, we're in chapter 10. They're on the road going to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Interesting. Mark hasn't mentioned that before. Most rabbis would walk amongst their disciples. They would be gathered around him. But Jesus is now walking ahead of them, leading the way. He says that people were afraid. I wonder if his message is starting to sink in. Hey, this is not going to be a cakewalk when we get to Jerusalem. We're not going to do what you think that we're on the way to do. Maybe it's starting to sink in. And he speaks again to them of suffering. He begins to tell them what's going to happen. See, we're going to Jerusalem. Verse 33. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Look how Jesus describes this. It's the religious establishment and it's the Gentiles coming together to kill Jesus. The entire system is coming against him. He's a threat. Jesus is too liberal for the conservatives and he's too conservative to the liberals. And he's a threat to society. If this is how they treated Jesus, why should we be surprised when we are treated the same way? The way of the cross is the way of suffering, but it's also the way of service. James and John, they can't get off of this. They come and they say, Lord, Grant us to sit at your right hand and your left. They again, they want the glory. They want to be in the positions of power. And Jesus says, that's not how my disciples treat one another. He says in verse 42, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And then verse 45, the theme verse for all of Mark. You want to know what the gospel of Mark is about? Chapter 10, verse 45. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Christ is the mighty Messiah. And he came to serve and give his life as an atoning sacrifice. And Mark closes this section with another healing story in verses 46 to 52. They approach Jericho. Jericho is 17 miles northeast of Jerusalem. They're getting close. 
And this blind man begins to call out in verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus comes and this blind man has been there. And Jesus says in verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Now, Jesus is under a lot of pressure here. The blind man could say, yeah, I'd like some money. If you got some food, that'd be great. Maybe he can get something like that from Jesus. But what does he say? Lord, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, remember where we left off last week, just before the confession of Peter, a blind man was healed. And it was that weird story about the man was blind. Jesus fit. He touched his eyes and he said, I see men. They look like trees. Partial vision. We said that was a picture of the disciples. They had partial vision. They couldn't see people for who they are. They couldn't see what Jesus was doing. Mark gives us another healing story where a man receives his sight. Why? Because of because even though he couldn't see Jesus physically, he saw Jesus clearly for who he was. He had faith to see. It's another story about salvation. Lord, I want to see. Because he had seen Jesus through faith. Brothers and sisters, this morning, you and I have the opportunity to see and to touch. As we approach the Lord's table, we have bread and we have the cup. And they are ways that we see what the Lord did. We see the way of the cross. We see what it cost him, his broken body, his poured out blood, and we can touch it and we can taste it. The way of the cross. Join me in prayer as we approach the table of our Lord Jesus. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed just for a moment. We won't tarry long, but I want to give you the opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning. You're like that young man. Steeped in religious tradition. A great reputation. But there's something holding you back. From embracing the way of the cross. This is an invitation to lay it aside. To turn from the world. To set your mind on the things of God. And embrace the call of Christ to follow him. Would you call on Christ this morning? Just like that blind man did. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's the prayer of someone with faith. To believe in Jesus. Even sitting right there, you can confess your sins and be saved this morning and be able to partake in the supper. Now, if you haven't been saved, if you haven't been baptized, I'm going to invite you to just let the, the, the elements pass because this is a sign that we have received personally, the body and the blood of Christ for forgiveness of sins. But if you're here this morning and you're struggling sometimes to see Jesus, it's a struggle sometimes to embrace the way of the cross, to embrace the way of suffering, of service. 
Would you see Christ this morning as he's given to you here at the table and be reminded of his salvation for you and for me? Lord Jesus, we